0: People need to do some math about climate change. The world in the last decade has spent $2 trillion on renewables, but carbon emissions haven't gone down at all. That's what's going to open the door, and it's starting to happen now to reconsider nuclear power.
1: This is Energy Cast and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about the balance between carbon emissions and the way forward for both the developed and developing world. At the end of every episode, I offer my guests a chance to give their thoughts on different energy technologies, and if you've noticed, no guest has ever sliced the pie the same. I'm a firm believer in the concept of everything, everywhere, all the time. Every energy source deserves a place in the mix, and to rely too heavily on any single source just runs a dangerous risk. Just a decade ago, natural gas prices fluctuated wildly. This created headaches for producers and consumers alike. Countries that impose tough penalties on carbon emissions with massive coal fleets have had to change their product mix, often painfully, and these days we are seeing challenges with supply in the areas that have gone full throttle on renewable energy. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I've never wanted this show to be about climate change. Enough shows do that. We want to talk about energy solutions and energy needs. But when I was sent a copy of the book written by my guest, the angle by which he and his co-author approached greenhouse gas issues definitely had my attention. Not to spoil the headline, but it is adamantly pro-nuclear, extremely skeptical of renewable energy, and very critical of an environmental community that got us here. It's a corner that they've been painting themselves into for the past 40 years, so consumed with painting nuclear power with an evil brush that when climate change became the world's chief environmental concern, they had tarnished the one power source that could provide a abundant, affordable, reliable, carbon-free energy. In fact, countries like Germany, which have massive fleets of nuclear plants, have shuttered several of them in favor of renewables, and as a result, coal or gas fires up when renewables are not available, resulting in higher carbon emissions, not less. Next month marks the 40th anniversary of both the China Syndrome and the Three Mile Island, or TMI, incident, which nuclear power foes still cite as two of the biggest arguments against the industry. Our guest agrees. For those who may not remember jane fonda and michael douglas star as local tv news crews doing a profile piece on a fictitional nuclear power plant
2: hello this is kimberly wells and i'm here at the ventana nuclear power plant we're going to focus on nuclear power that almost magical transformation of matter into energy that the experts tell us may be our best shot at energy selfish sufficient, sufficient Got what happened? Reminds me of
1: who people I worked with. Douglas, the cameraman, already has a chip on his shoulder.
2: Gibson's talking.
1: You're listening, right? Uranium, huh? They make the bombs out of that little stuff,
2: don't they? Ooh, they didn't mention that, did they? Wait till you get that other room, get that radiation all over that cute little body.
1: As a former TV news producer, I love it when movies reveal they don't know squat about how TV news really works. Like when Douglas treats an interview like it's a movie scene.
0: Okay, that's a cut. That was great. Uh, let's get a reaction shot on Kimberly over you don't,
2: here. Can I do it again?
1: No. Yeah, you don't say cut when you're taping a TV interview. Anyway, during the visit, there's an equipment malfunction, which Douglas secretly records and later shows to some nuclear experts. Jack Lemon plays the operational shift supervisor who is on hand during the incident, which he discovers was an indication of a larger problem at the plant. When he tries to alert his bosses, he's told to pipe down, and in the third act, he takes matters into his own hands. The plant malfunctions anyway, all because the plant owners are too greedy to take an outage. The China Syndrome refers to a nuclear meltdown in which the reactor would theoretically melt all the way through the earth to China. Now, I was skeptical after renting the movie, so I decided to ask him. Expert. The great thing about my day job is my experienced colleagues like James Proctor, who used to be a shift supervisor just like the Lemon character. So just like the experts who are shown the footage in the China Syndrome, I thought it would be cool to show some scenes to James, and he could basically provide commentary over two scenes. The accident the news crew witnesses, and the scene when the nuclear experts share their grim opinions about what they just witnessed. It went something like this.
2: And, and you know, the funny thing about that is, that's a seismic event that that building's feeling. Vibration from the pumps, they make it equivalent <laughs> to an earthquake seismic event.
1: The whole plant shaking. The whole plant
2: <laughs> the water bottle is vibrating. And in an earthquake, those would be true. <laughs> Wilford Brimley. <laughs> I like those actors a lot. Yeah. So it's just seeing all the alarms that come in and the timing that they come in at. Ted,
0: stabilize the reactor.
2: So if there was a primary leak, you would get radiation alarms and containment. I've always thought this control room was empty. Is there about that many people in there? So especially during this time frame, you normally have a supervisor, which is Brimley's character, his boss, which is shift manager, which is Jack Lemmon, and you'd have two or three control room operators at the panels so it's for that, the whole control room. It really is that few yeah. people.
1: That's the communications guy and Fonda and Douglas. Wouldn't they tell them just to get out of there? They're just politely sitting there observing all. Of this.
2: Yeah, so things that are going on containment would not endanger them at this time at the plant. Now, the radiation levels, if outside of containment, your auxiliary building, another building started to alarm, mm-hmm. then that is an element that's starting to affect all plants.
1: They're hitting relief valves now. Ana's going, Are you recording this? And Douglas's like, Yeah, I'm recording this. He's got kind of the camera, camera. by his hip. Yeah. <laughs> just shooting everything. He, Douglas would go to jail for this, right?
2: Back in that time frame, the nuclear industry was was very standoffish to the public and what they showed them. Today, honestly, they're doing planned tours more than ever with media, with camera, even in containment.
1: Okay, so the whole issue here in this, I believe, is what's going on is they're reading a low water level or in something. In the reactor. In the reactor. Right. But then Brimley on his side, he's reading another gauge, which is showing it fine. And
2: right. And then he taps it and the thing drops. So the the analog right. gauge is wrong, right? It was a stuck recorder. Yeah. Yeah. That actually has feasibility, stuck Mm -hmm. recorders. TMI had some elements of these things going on. They had a stuck open safety in the primary. They had conflicting indications. They had all those things going on.
1: Make sure that they stay there.
2: Now he's seeing that he's got a real event, (laughs) and he is trying to warn the people that are in the plant. There's a turbine building here. And everyone's kind of not, getting out of there. <laughs> yeah, not in the primary plant, not in the containment. <laughs> Nowhere near the reactor. They're just kind of... Right. Just, okay. And Jack Lemon's just kind of doing Jack Lemon. Yeah, so they're losing control of the reactor water level, and that's what he's contemplating on. Why would reactor. the water level be dropping here? Because it's stuck up on safety, and it's losing inventory. After, and they can't close it? Whatever the reason is, they couldn't close it. And the other valve's open because of high pressure. Lemon's now consulting God. <laughs> well, he knows he's in trouble. Oh! You had what now? LIPSI, low pressure safety injection. Pumps with the lower head pressure can now inject into the reactor. So
1: basically they had to hit the relief valves and they had to decompress long enough to now allow it to fill back up. Is that's that the correct. idea? Okay.
2: So whoever was on this movie. They knew the they knew, dynamics knew. of the reactor. Okay. And that's not a untypical design of a control room. A little bigger than most. This is a very long pause. It works. Dramatic. It uh, works dramatically. The flop sweat. What they believe they've done is they've done all that they can do to restore water level and they're waiting for the plant to respond such.
1: Alright, so here's the second part. This is Jane Fonda. I think they're at City Hall or they're at some sort of hearing that's been going on. The next nuclear power plant that they're going to do. And these experts are there and Douglas has has swiped the film from the TV station, basically has stolen it and has set up a room kind of like we're in now and is showing this video of what's happening to these experts to see what they think if this is something or if this is nothing. This Jane is before Fonis,
2: the event? Well, this is between the two events the one that they filmed and finale of the film. Oh, so he's yeah. showing it to them for them to evaluate what was yeah, going on. Yeah, of course, no
1: audio, scene. no, right. you know, it's just film.
0: I may be wrong, but I would say you're probably lucky to be alive. For that matter, I think we. We might say the same for the rest of Southern California.
2: Now this is where they kind of go off the deep end here. I don't know, they might have come close to exposing the poor. If that's true, then we came very close to the China syndrome. Now that's where it goes kind of (laughs) nuts. If the core is exposed, for whatever reason, the fuel heats beyond core heat tolerance in a matter of minutes, nothing can stop it. And it melts right down through the bottom of the plant, theoretically, to China. Ironically, TMI2, where we did have the accident, was in Pennsylvania. Yeah, right, the size of Pennsylvania. The size of Pennsylvania, so. A little prescient on
1: that deal. Okay, so so let's unpack what this guy is saying, because he's saying a lot of nutty stuff that I think is still kind of with us 40 years later so he's saying basically (laughs) oh god where does he even start basically the water level would get down below the core the core would overheat and then basically it would just melt down through the earth into groundwater Cause a plume of radioactive cloud of that and then it would be uninhabitable.
2: So as usual, there is elements of truth to what he said there. The uncovered portions of the reactor core will eventually overheat and start deforming. In example of TMI, they did have total core melting, but it was all contained as it was designed to contain. That was a theoretical fear that you would have an uncontrolled melting issue of a core going through the ground. And obviously that's not true or accurate. And so what community. kind of of safety measures do they have to prevent it to getting to that point tmi caused the nuclear industry an incredible shift in so many areas it caused a ton of regulatory changes to existing reactor plants and future power plants in the united states thankfully for that for the most part the world follows a lot of what the united states does not necessarily everything but a lot So there you have it,
1: a lot there that was pretty accurate, but just enough meltdown melodrama to ensure 40 years of nuclear hysteria. My second guest today is Joshua Goldstein, professor at American University in Massachusetts and co-author of A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. His co-author, Staffan Quist, has a PhD in nuclear engineering and also consults for the Clean Air Task Force, which is a forward-looking environmental group we had a longtime friend of mine from the organization on back in episode 15. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joshua Goldstein. professor joshua goldstein a bright future is the book and joshua you say flatly renewables doesn't add up to a complete solution and you fiercely fight for nuclear to make up the difference do you think the world is coming around to the limitations of particularly wind and solar well yes i think that the
0: scale of the climate problem is getting clearer and clearer to people And it's obvious that the world's not on track to solve climate change. We haven't even started reducing carbon emissions worldwide, and we need to reduce them really fast, almost entirely in 30 years. To do that with renewables, wind and solar, as fun as they are and as great as they are and popular, they just don't add up nearly fast enough. And we know this from Germany, which just put a lot of effort into renewables in the last decade if the whole world did that. And of course, the whole world doesn't have the money or the enthusiasm or anything that Germany has, it would take almost 150 years to get to decarbonization. But Sweden next door did a similar thing, getting fossil fuel off the grid, but they did it with nuclear reactors a couple of decades ago. And at their rate, we could do that in 30 years worldwide. And that's before you get into the problems of intermittency as renewables get to be a bigger share of the grid. We have a lot of work to do and we have to go really fast at it. And only nuclear really scales up that fast.
1: And look, one of the problems with renewables, you talked about the intermittency is having too many renewables. And. And that leads to this concept of negative pricing when utilities have to pay consumers to take it. Any ideas on how we could get utilities more relief in that case? Because that isn't good for anybody.
0: It's a difficult thing to manage a source that's coming and going like that. Hydropower is very useful for letting the water out and generating electricity when the sun isn't shining and then stopping it up again when the sun comes out. But there's a limit to how far you can go with that. We did an analysis of countries in Europe that showed that there was an entire week when neither solar nor wind combined are up to 10% of capacity. So if you're trying to get 100% renewables and you got a whole week when nothing's producing, where's that going to come? from. Yeah.
1: And you talked about rooftop solar. What do you think about that new California mandate? All new houses have
0: to have rooftop solar. You think that's misguided? Yeah. I'm not a big fan of it because utility scale solar is getting really cheap, but rooftop solar is still pretty expensive. You're mandating a cost on everybody for what's not really a very efficient way to generate clean electricity. And what I'm really not a fan of is that California is planning to take offline its last nuclear power plant, and that's a lot of clean electricity. And then they're paying this kind of premium price to put solar on rooftops. So you end up with among the most expensive electricity in the country, in California, and yet you're still at a pretty small fraction of the grid. It's only going to get a lot more difficult to manage as you go along.
1: You talked a little bit about hydropower. I've spoken to several hydroelectric folks. They say the issue isn't environmental, it's regulatory. And I think a lot of people in their imaginations think that we would have to flood another valley. But the statistic is, is only 3% of our existing
0: dams are electrified. So why don't we power up more of them? So I think it's about 20% of our electric dams that are generating some electricity. And there was a study on this a few years ago that showed that we could get more out of our existing dams. That's probably a good idea, but it was about 15% increase that we could get. So it was like another good idea, good step in the right direction, not going to solve the problem at the scale that we need to. And then worldwide, a lot of the best hydropower locations are already built. And there you do need to flood new places to create more. And there's a lot of that going on worldwide. But from the economic point of view, hydropower is a no-brainer because it's cheap, reliable, 24 hours. And as I said, you can even turn it up and down to match out fluctuation on the grid, especially if you have renewables on the grid.
1: Getting to fossil fuels. Now, (laughs) I've heard this one other time where they called out natural gas, a PC-friendly term for what you call it, which is methane. (laughs) What about things like carbon capture and storage? I've talked to environmentalists who say that, look, if you really want to do a net reduction in CO2, why don't you start really investing in carbon capture and storage and start capping the fleet as it is? Now, I'm not talking about building a wave of new coal plants. Just cap what's there and probably what's the most cost effective. What do you think of that?
0: I would distinguish coal from natural gas or methane here. The efforts to capture carbon from coal plants just have not been successful to date. I think we should keep trying. It's a good thing to put research money into, but I wouldn't count on it right now. It's just not economical. Methane, by contrast, is looking promising. There's a company called Net Power and that's got a pilot plant that offers if it works to capture the carbon while generating electricity from the methane and operate at pretty much the same cost as the plant that doesn't capture the carbon. That's promising, that's good. There is another problem with the methane though, and that is that when it leaks, it's a very potent greenhouse gas, especially in the Russian distribution system, very leaky. If Germany brings in natural gas from Russia, there's a lot of that methane's also leaking into the atmosphere and undoing some of the good that might be done from, say, switching from coal to methane.
1: Joshua, you wrote this book to offer a climate change solution. People who listen to this podcast know that I try very hard not to be a climate change show, but I will say this about carbon. Now, if we really want to do something about a net reduction of carbon, then why don't we see more of an emphasis on, I'm going to use a big term here, anthropogenic photosynthesis, essentially man-made plant activity. Look, it's fine enough to try to reduce the amount going into the atmosphere, the blower, but don't you think we really also need a vacuum? As well. We're going
0: to need a vacuum at some point. And this is what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recent report said. By mid century, we have to have some way to start sucking carbon out of the atmosphere or potentially out of the ocean where it's a 100 times more concentrated than the atmosphere. But it's a lot easier to suck it out of a smokestack before it goes into the atmosphere because it's just far more concentrated.
1: Talking about climate change, and as I was reading your book, I was doing some soul searching about this. And this is what I've come up with. Now, on this show, I've presented this concept of, chicken little, you think the sky is falling, it's all over tomorrow, or you're an ostrich where you flat out won't listen to anything with regard to climate change. And this is where I am. I hate hearing about the doom and gloom stuff. It freaks me out. And then i ultimately reject it. And then this bias is confirmed when the worst case predictions, which seem to be by definition the predictions, when those don't come true. And yet I believe we need to wind down carbon emissions. Do you think that maybe the political right in particular has been turned off on carbon policy because they find this chicken little talk offensive. Do you think maybe there needs to be a better argument than simply scaring
0: people to take this seriously? I think there does need to be a better political discourse on the topic, that's for sure. It's extremely divided now, and the thing that predicts how a person feels about climate change is not how knowledgeable they are about it or how much they care about the world. It's their party affiliation. People on the right say, climate change equals Al Gore, if he's against it, I'm for it, and the same thing on the left, and they're not talking with each other. But in general, I would take issue with your idea that predictions are not coming true. I've been following this for several decades now. Scientists are actually being pretty cautious about calling what they think is going to happen. But here's the catch. What's turning out badly is not really going to materialize for decades or in some cases centuries into the future. The chicken littles that say climate change is here. We see all these hurricanes happening and all that. Yeah, there's changes a little bit in the weather patterns, more fires, more droughts and all of that. But that's not what we should worry about. We should worry about the big tipping points. We may tip the world's climate into disastrous outcomes in subsequent decades and centuries, we could have another ice age and that kind of thing.
1: Well, Joshua, what do you think also about the people who seem to use climate change as some sort of scapegoat? I mean, we had all these fires in California and Governor Jerry Brown was saying it wasn't forest management that could have prevented the problem. It was climate change. Well, that is something that will take decades to remove a certain amount of CO2 out of the atmosphere. Why don't you do something about your forest management? It just seems like that is so let's just lay down and (laughs) accept our demise.
0: I don't understand that. I just feel like we're not having the conversation we need to be having, which is the big picture. Mm -hmm. And on the left, people are like, oh, look at these forest fires. It's climate change is here. And at the same time, you know, we need to build more solar cells and wind turbines to stop this. And the math of that doesn't add up at all. Wind turbines we build now are not going to stop forest fires anytime soon. And then on the right, it's like, oh, no, we don't believe in climate change. So it must be forest management or something. But I like to think of it as you go to the doctor and learn that you have a life-threatening illness, but there is a proven medicine that can get you better. And then you could say, well, I don't believe that I'm ill. That would be the right wing. you know, I don't believe in climate change. Or you could say, like the left does, I don't like that medicine. I'm going to take Some other thing that isn't proven and actually doesn't work, that would be 100% renewables. Or you could be like yourself and most people and just say, ah, we're going to die. You, know, you can't do anything. I you can't think about it. What we're saying in this book is use the medicine that's proven to work, which is nuclear power. We can build this out. We can scale it up fast enough and we can get on top of this problem. That's why we call it a bright future.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk about the medicine that you're prescribing. Your book is adamantly pro-nuclear. And I'm right there with you. But it seems like the whole world is quickly moving away from nuclear as it wants to be more carbon free. So what fun fundamentally
0: needs to change to get the world back to being pro-nuclear? Well, the people need to do some math about climate change. And I think this is starting to happen. Time goes by and you realize the math isn't adding up. The world is in the last decade has spent $2 trillion on renewables, but carbon emissions haven't gone down at all. So that's what's going to open the door. And it's starting to happen now to reconsider nuclear power. The Union of Concerned Scientists has always been very skeptical about using nuclear, but they want to solve climate change. And they just came around a couple months ago to a new stance. So is It just a crack in the door, but there's a change going on in the discourse now.
1: You know, that's been very interesting. Since we last talked, I rented China Syndrome. I'd never seen it. You mentioned <laughs> China <laughs> Syndrome a lot. In fact, the movie is, old as I am. I'm almost 40 years old. So Mm -hmm. one of the big points I was going to make with this episode is that I feel like the environmental community has really done the most damage on this. They have spent the better part of 40 years telling us how horrible nuclear is. The most glaring case is China syndrome. I feel like a lot of the education probably needs to come from them, don't you think?
0: Yeah. The supreme irony that the environmentalists who care most about climate change are also the most opposed to the medicine that can fix it. But I understand it. I started out there myself back in the 1970s in California. I was a young activist. There was a whole ideology that went with it. And it had to do with technology is bad. Back to the land is good. Natural is good. Natural, organic, locally sourced. This whole feeling small is beautiful. And that is not nuclear power. You know, nuclear power is technology, it's large. And then overlaid on that, the Cold War, and we're all hiding our heads under the desks when I was a kid, and so people got confused, nuclear weapons versus nuclear power. You know, spoiler alert, they're not the same thing, but people crosswire them. If you say no nukes, it might mean no nuclear weapons, it might mean no nuclear power. Then these environmentalist groups got set into this ideology and adamantly opposed to nuclear power, and it became a source of a lot of their support, their donations, and and their own esprit de corps were so anti-nuclear. Turn out in the streets, it was a cause people got behind. And out of that came hundreds of millions of dollars of publicity and propaganda, for lack of a better word, about the evils of nuclear power. And the nuclear industry's been a bad proponent of its own position. Part of that's because the nuclear companies also own a lot of fossil fuel companies, so they don't really care if they're generating from nuclear or from methane. You just protest Um, um, the same guy, yeah. And part of it is that they have the idea that if they keep telling everyone how safe nuclear power is, which it is, we can get into that. They say safe, 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 and people just hear it must be dangerous. Otherwise, why would they have to keep telling us how safe it is? So there's a breakdown in the ability of the public to assess costs and risks here. And then overlaid with the fictional accounts that sparked the public imagination, like the movie China Syndrome with Jane Fonda, which unfortunately happened at the time of the Three Mile Island accident. Right. <laughs> the, terrible the, the, yeah. the accident didn't kill anybody. The radiation was contained. It was expensive. It was a stupid accident. Bad thing, but people crosswired it with that. The Fukushima accident happened at the same time as this massive tsunami and earthquake that killed almost 20,000 people. None of them from the Fukushima plant, but it's kind of cross-wired as there was this big disaster. All anyone remembers now is the Fukushima disaster. It was actually the earthquake disaster, a small piece of which was this industrial accident at Fukushima that released a little bit of radiation, didn't really hurt anybody. Out of that, and I think, as you say, the environmental groups maybe have to take the lead, some courageous people saying, we did believe in this, but now there's a greater cause that we have to pay attention to. We need to rethink our position.
1: You talk about risk in nuclear power, and you touch on this idea that zero risk means infinite cost when it comes to nuclear. Now, that's got to make your nuclear supporters nervous when you suggest that nuclear may be trying to be too safe at the expense of being too
0: expensive. Is there a balance between safety and cost-effectiveness? There should be a balance, but that's how we would do any other technology. Finland has just built the first repository for nuclear waste, and they did a study of what would happen if everything went wrong. And then a 1,000 years later, somebody comes and lives their whole life, drinks all their water from the same square meter of the most contaminated place there, and it ends up that they would get the radiation equivalent to a bunch of bananas. Bananas have potassium in them, so (laughs) they're slightly radioactive. The idea that we're going to get radiation down to zero, get risk down to zero, it's insanely expensive. And it's driven the whole industry onto the ropes just when we need it to be building up and getting more robust.
1: I'm curious what the nuclear industry would say to this claim that you're making that the nuclear industry doesn't have to be 100% safe. Yeah, I mean, it's common sense, but what do you think they would they, say something like that? They've
0: been hit over the head for so many years with any little thing that goes wrong is a disaster for humanity that they feel like all it would take is one little accident and the whole industry would probably shut down worldwide. So they've just extremely extremely... extremely cautious and they don't want to hear that, hey, loosen up and get the costs down and even if it's a little less safe. I like to think, and I'm not proposing this, but I think that if there were more nuclear accidents, it would actually be better in the sense that people would normalize it the way we do with plane crashes or auto crashes or anything else. People would say, okay, and after all, the other fuels are all killing people. Coal smoke kills vast numbers of people and methane blows up and oil trains derail. Everything has fatal accidents, except nuclear power almost never does. Well, I think that most
1: people, when they think of a nuclear accident, they're thinking of, something that's like a 20 out of 10 as opposed yeah. to a coal accident which might be well pretty isolated it seems like there's no small <laughs> nuclear accident well the <laughs>
0: fukushima accident's a good example of one that people think of as being a big accident but yeah. there was a containment vessel that mostly contained the radiation what leaked out to the general public was below the occupational limits of safety and then everybody freaked out anyway and started yanking patients out of hospital rooms with no medical support and some of them died in the evacuation as opposed to to, let's say, the Bhopal Union carbide disaster in India. There was a chemical leak and it killed thousands of people right on the spot and probably more than 10,000 eventually. The hydro dam in China in 1975 that broke 25,000 people, drowned right away and a couple hundred thousand people died as a consequence. People again confuse nuclear weapons with nuclear power plants. A power plant cannot blow up like a nuclear weapon. You can't get a mushroom cloud out of a nuclear power plant and that's a basic confusion.
1: You know, it's been really hard to build a nuclear plant over here, but China, it's not the case. At the time of this recording, I'm counting 13 under construction. But Joshua, you say they're using a shotgun approach and could be scaling up even
0: faster. How so? Well, China has, in addition to the ones under construction that you mentioned, they also just finished the first Westinghouse AP-1000 to go onto the grid and the first European EPR reactor. They're building their own designs based on a South Korean EPR-1400, So a similar design to that. And then they're working on thorium reactors and molten salt reactors, floating reactors. There's just a whole variety of things. But the reason I say shotgun approach is that they haven't picked one thing that they can really build out at scale fast. And so they're still burning pretty much as much coal as ever, half the world's coal. So if they wanted to get the coal off the grid, which would be also very good for their air quality, they could get that coal off the grid by scaling up nuclear power really fast. But what they'd have to do is to pick a design or maybe a couple of designs and get really good at building them, hundreds of reactors, not mm-hmm. 13 at once. The concept is to build nuclear reactors centrally in factories or shipyards, instead do them more like Boeing jet liners rolling off an assembly line and then ship them out to where they're going. That would be a game changer, I think. To be able to just stamp them out. Yeah, stamp them out. And also would allow China to export them and would be able to set an example for the rest of the world that this is doable. I think it would change the discourse a lot. And especially if you can bring the price of electricity down to a penny a kilowatt hour, then it becomes a real winner.
1: And I think that a lot of people feel like we in the United States in a way did that. We have the AP1000 is a quote unquote pre-approved design. And I guess I'm really oversimplifying this, but that was our attempt to stamp out nuclear plants. What happened there?
0: Yeah. And why is it that the first AP-1000 to come online is in China?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And look, I've talked about this in the show. I have co-workers who came from the VC summer plant. They were going to do an AP-1000 and it didn't work out. They canceled the plant.
0: Right. The costs just escalated yeah. incredibly. What's happening is we have the cost of the first one off the line. If you think of a computer chip, let's say the iPhone, it costs $2 billion for the first one. <laughs> and then the next one costs a 1000 know, The first of a kind is always going to be really expensive. And the United States didn't build reactors for 30 years, pretty much. And we lost an entire generation of people. And then we come along like, let's build reactors again. In fact, let's build this AP1000. There's a couple of other designs that are brand new designs but we just don't have the experience. We're not stamping them out. And the first of a kind gets out there and then you have to tweak the design. Then you go starting to build it and the design's changing and the regulators are changing things. And the environmental groups are filing lawsuits constantly and lying down in front of your bulldozer. <laughs> and eventually you've got the $12 billion plant for a gigawatt that the South Koreans can build for $2 billion. Yeah. So does it mean that nuclear power is too expensive and we should give up on it? Or does it mean we should do more of what the South Koreans do, build it over and over? The same team builds it over and over. And the guy that's running that team calls everybody together once a week and says, how do we bring costs down? That's something we're just not focused on here. Here, it's like, how do we make this even safer than safe?
1: We're going from developed, very <laughs> developed countries to the developing world. And this is something I talk about a lot on the podcast. I I love talking about bringing energy to the developing world. I like what you said about these small villages in these developing parts of the world demanding what you call real electricity, not fake electricity. Tell us what you mean by that.
0: Well, there was a village in India where the environmental groups from the West came in to give them solar power and renewable energy and batteries. And immediately they want to buy refrigerators and air conditioners and start using electricity. So the demand was more than projected. Then it turned out the batteries don't hold enough power to run things around the clock. The whole system was undersized for what people needed. So they raised a big protest about it and they got the politicians to come in and extend the grid to their village. By the way, a grid that runs on coal, but that was their slogan was we want real electricity, not fake electricity.
1: Yeah, I mean, you yeah. get a taste of it. You're going to want more
0: than the pump in the middle of town doing your well water. And here's where I don't agree with this environmentalist ideology that I had decades ago. The idea that small is beautiful and that we should go back to the land and that technology is bad. People in poor countries lift out of poverty on the back of energy. And if it's fossil fuels, that's the cheapest as it is right now, then that's what they're going to use. And so now people in India want air conditioners. And if you just add up how much electricity is going to go into the demand for air conditioning, in india alone it's just huge but this is a good thing energy is good for poor people. And the idea that people in poor countries should consume less energy because we people in the rich countries have already used up all the carbon that we can put in the atmosphere, that's not going to fly.
1: Yeah. I loved it in the book when you talked about this being a moral right that people have to electricity. Yeah. Another big issue for a lot of environmentalists has always been overpopulation, right? The Population Bomb was a popular book in those circles. And so one of the great things that you brought up in the book was this idea that, yes, electricity Electricity will bring people out of poverty, but it will also
0: lower birth rates where people aren't having 20 kids. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is really well established. As incomes rise, you start out with poor people with very large families because a lot of their children are gonna die, and it's their social security to make sure some of them are gonna stay alive long enough to help them when they're old. As their incomes go up and they have fewer children because they see that more of their children are surviving, and because the women have access to education and can plan their families. So the birth rate goes down, and it's gone down very dramatically as part of this process of rising incomes in the poorer countries. What you wanna do to solve the population issue is give people more energy and raise their incomes, and then they'll have fewer children, the population will level out.
1: Right, and one of the points that you made here is we talk so much about if the United States built, heaven forbid, another coal plant, but then you're also talking about you have a billion people without power, and many of them live in areas where the only thing that's available to them is lignite, very dirty coal. And look, I mean, the United States, even under President Trump, carbon emissions have gone down, even without Paris and even without any of that. One of the big issues has gotta be, how do you energize all of the developing world and not blow up the carbon
0: emissions numbers, right? Right, that's a big question. The short-term version of that is, how do you get China to stop emitting so much? Because they're now emitting more carbon than the United States and the European Union combined. Mm -hmm. They've just grown so fast. In one sense, the Western industrialized countries like the United States have just exported their carbon emissions to China. True. The steel that was used in the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge came over from China to count on China's carbon emissions. The Western countries becoming post-industrial and using less energy, and yet importing everything from China that uses more energy. And then
1: one of the chapters you talk about wrapping up is a tax on carbon. What do you think about the recent riots in France? That was from an imposed massive carbon tax on gasoline. The whole country almost tore itself apart over something like that. And that's a challenging thing, Joshua, because you're taxing gasoline. People don't have alternatives to switch to other than they drive less. But say we did this in the United States, you can't exactly take a subway in Enid, Oklahoma. (laughs) You know, you don't have any alternatives to that. Has maybe the riots in France and, and what that meant to those people, has that maybe colored your support for carbon taxes? Or do you think they are definitely appropriate in some places?
0: Well, they're certainly appropriate. And economists, will tell you that they're the best way to accomplish carbon emission reductions because they operate quickly and across the boards instead of going in and trying to regulate emissions from cars and subsidize solar and all these government policies that are kind of piecemeal the carbon pricing would go across the board. If you want to pollute more, you're going to pay more. And people don't want to pay more, so they change their behavior. So that's all great. But as you say, the problem has been the politics of it. France, the effort to pass carbon pricing in the state of Washington in this last election, which failed at the ballot box. And before that, the government of Australia had put in a carbon price and was voted out of office. Probably the best proposal in the United States is to put the price on carbon and then re it to the people in some kind of dividend. But the details of getting that to work politically, very tricky.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. And I thought about this, too. Is this decision about what kind of energy you're going to use, carbon intensive or not, gasoline aside, it seems to me that's more of a decision that happens on a utility level. People paying their electric bills aren't choosing, yes, I want more coal. Most of the time, most people don't know where their electricity came from.
0: This is why I think the real game changer for nuclear power will be mass production, stamping them out, as you said, and bringing the cost down lower than anything, because expecting people to change their behavior because of some moral rationale never works very well. And the thing that works really well is to offer, whether it's an American or the farmer in India, something that's better and cheaper.
1: Absolutely. Joshua, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. And I know we've talked about a lot of these families of technologies. Technologies throughout this interview, but really quick summary of where you think all these different technologies fit, starting with natural gas, or as you are calling it, methane.
0: Yes. Methane is cheap. It's plentiful. It's half as polluting as coal, which is good, but not that good. The big problem is about the leaks along the way, which are very potent and haven't been dealt with yet. Crude oil is essential for the transportation systems. And if we're going to decarbonize the world, we're going to need some alternative to it. Ideally, you'd have cheap electricity from a clean source and produce substitute drop-in fuels through some process that would turn that electricity into something that would look like gasoline to your car. And (laughs) pretty pretty firm on your opinion on this one, nuclear. (laughs) Nuclear is the only thing that will scale up fast enough and it's potentially the cheapest source of electricity if handled appropriately. It's safe and reliable and could really solve the problem.
1: I know how you feel about coal, so I'm going to add a curveball on this one. Coal with carbon
0: capture. Coal with carbon capture would be okay if you could do it, but nobody's been able to do it yet. Put some money into research on carbon capture, but meanwhile, don't count on coal to power the world. Wind. Reasonably cheap these days, pretty expansive in terms of its land use. Problem is the variability of production. Offshore wind is promising on that score and the costs are coming down, but it's still more expensive. And the solar. Rooftop too expensive. Utility scale really cheap and getting cheaper all the time. There's a new generation of organic solar cells that are coming in that'll be cheaper still. In the places where solar is appropriate, it could be used to produce some of these substitute fuels that would look like gasoline to your car, but you can't use it for the overall grid in a large percentage of your total electricity because of the intermittency. Biofuels. Biofuels like corn-based ethanol are problematic and they have all kinds of unintended side effects, like what they do to the price of corn in Mexico. And we're using the corn here for ethanol. But the biofuels that would be like electric fuels, cheap electricity, run through genetically modified bacteria, that's promising. I think we should be researching that hydroelectric. A no-brainer if you have the resource. It's cheap, it's reliable, it produces what the grid needs. The problems are it's environmentally destructive and most of the good places in the world are already dammed up and used, so it has limited scalability.
1: One that I find that we don't hear enough about, geothermal.
0: We probably don't hear enough about it. And that's another one that just hasn't really proved itself economical and practical yet, but has promise. I'd say more research on that. Energy storage coming down in cost, but not nearly enough to make it practical for letting you run the grid on renewables in particular. Right now, the cheapest way to do that is pump water up a hill and let it run down again when you need the power. It's kind of crude, but <laughs> that's what we got.
1: Well, that's the largest battery in the world is uh, yeah. pump, pump storage, right? <laughs> that's uh, right. Electric vehicles.
0: My Drive One have been for a decade, and I think they're fun. They have not been taking off with the public imagination the way people hope decade decade go. But on the other hand, Teslas are cool and they might yet come in. It's one of the several options to clean up the transportation sector.
1: We talk a lot about environmentalists on this episode, and this is one of their big champions for a solution is energy efficiency.
0: (laughs) I'm all for it. I'm one who always goes around turning off the lights because of my old days as an environmentalist. And and I'm still an environmentalist, but it's not the thing that's going to solve the problem of climate change. All the efforts to make automobiles more efficient in the United. States. At the same time, we've been driving more miles per person over the years. They cancel out completely. Overall, it's not reducing the energy use in the world. We're going to need more energy, not less.
1: And we know you're a big proponent of nuclear fission. What about nuclear fusion?
0: There's some promising research on it, and it's another category, I'd say. More research, good idea. Don't count on it. it might be really important in the second half of the century.
1: All right. Joshua Goldstein, a bright future. Thank
0: you so much for your time. It's <laughs> Good to be with you. And if people want more info, there's a website at brightfuturebook.com.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. That was Joshua Goldstein, professor and co-author of A Bright Future, which is available now. It was a quick and engaging read, and I hope you pick up a copy. I want to thank Joshua for his time, and I wish both he and his co-author, Stefan Quist, the best of luck with the book. And special thanks to Andy Davis with Press Shop PR for sending me an advanced copy of the book and setting up the interview. And last but not least, I want to thank James Proctor for sitting down and watching The China Syndrome with me. It's an honor to get to work with folks like that every single day. All guests are sent the raw completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 51. Be sure to join us next week when we return to the Naval Research Laboratory to learn how there's a whole ocean of fuel ready to satisfy our energy needs. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.